You know, Pete um, and Evan both asked me this morning, they said, Ron, how are you? I said, I'm fine. And they, they said, well, listen, don't worry about the butterflies in your stomach. I said, well, listen, I, I woke up with butterflies this morning, but I can tell you they're gone. What I have now is more like pterodactyls working down here. <laughs> and, and since I'm coming clean, I might as well tell you I'm under a little bit of pressure. The last thing my wife told me, she said, listen, watch what you say. Consider your words very carefully and don't get us thrown out of this church. <laughs> so here goes. And I, because of the pressure, because of the nervousness, I may wind up reading more than maintaining eye contact, so please just bear with me. My name is Ron Alleman. I live in Metairie. I've lived here all my life. I met my wife, Flo, in 1965. We were married in 1970. We have three sons and five grandchildren. Amen. I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Am I holding this too close? We're fine? Okay. I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior in November of 1998 when I was 50 years old. I wish I had come to know him sooner. Although I thought I knew this man named Jesus because of the religious training I had in school, and even though we went to church regularly, I really didn't know Jesus. I would say the circumstances surrounding my coming to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior can be summed up rather simply. First of all, and like many people, I guess, I had my priorities all messed up. I thought work came first, the family came second, and to be honest with you, I did not even know where God was supposed to fit in. Material things, the stuff of this world, particularly money, was my priority. My misguided thinking was that obtaining money and the things money could buy, the stuff, would be evidence of success and accomplishment, and that would bring gratification and peace and happiness. I subsequently came to realize I was believing a lie. While I was spending far too much time at work and then worrying about work when I was home, my family was falling apart because of a lack of godly influence in our home. And as I began to experience that the stuff I had valued so highly was not providing peace and happiness, I began to fret and to worry. And to be honest with you, the worry turned into periods of depression. Sometimes I would become frustrated and angry that things were not working out the way I thought they should. Feelings of being worthless and a failure crept into my life. At times, there seemed to be no hope. And in a desperate effort to find relief, I turned to the things of this world, alcohol in particular. I drank far too much for my own good and for the good of my family. The way I look back on it now, <clears throat> I had no other perspective, no other alternative to turn to at that point in my life. I did not know Jesus in his ways. I did not know that the almighty creator of the universe was my friend and that he loved me 
and that he sent his son into this world to die for my sins. And that he did that so that I could spend an eternity of peace and joy with him in heaven. Because I really didn't know Jesus, God and his teachings were not an alternative I had that I could turn to at that point in my life. Another thing that caused me to consider that I might be on the wrong track was my family was experiencing a lot of hardship, and I mean a lot of hardship. Again, looking back on the situation, we, and I'm talking about myself and my whole family now, were very much into what I would term worldly, a worldly life cycle, or worldly lifestyle, excuse me. And we were experiencing all the bad things that come from that lifestyle. We went to the wrong places, we saw the wrong movies, we did the wrong things, and in some cases we had the wrong friends. But we were blind to the consequences that those things were having on our lives. We just couldn't make the connection. Hey, look, we we thought we were good people. You heard that we hadn't killed anybody. And we were only doing what everybody else was doing. We didn't think we were doing anything bad or harmful. This was another lie we believed. We did not know the truth that comes from knowing God. We were blind, but after coming to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he opened our eyes. And my testimony wouldn't be complete if I didn't confess that I was pride-filled, I was arrogant, I was self-centered, and I was self-righteous. The problems that we were facing were always someone else's fault. They were never my own. If everyone else would only be like me, everything would have been just fine. That was my thinking. How foolish, huh? God knew that pride had to go. I remember after coming to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, this pride-filled, arrogant, know-it-all, wept like a baby, openly, in the first row of our church, as God's truth revealed the, the harm that that attitude had and I thank God that he cut that arrogance out of me his word cut it out of me and you know what's amazing to me absolutely amazing God in his mercy reached out to me even when I was still proud and arrogant I remember the first time I came to church after accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior and asking in a very flip way, what are, what are all those tissue boxes about? <laughs> and the response from those who were wiser said, you'll find out. <laughs> and I did, and I thank God for it. All of these things the wrong priorities, the alcohol, the worldliness, and the pride culminated in a very bad home life for me and all of my family. And all there were problems all along, signs that there was something terribly wrong all along. Problems in the relationship with my wife, problems with our children. It wasn't until the mid-1990s 
that I hit rock bottom. <clears throat> That's when it seemed that everything turned bad, and I mean everything. I felt there was no way life was going to get any better. That's when the harsh reality that all of these material things, this stuff that I had worked so hard to accumulate could not fix the problems that we were facing. That's when the harsh reality came crashing down on me that my priorities and my thinking, and in fact, my entire way of life to that point, had been wrong. Feelings of depression and worthlessness hit with a vengeance. <clears throat> And although I never reached the point where I wanted to take my life, I can truly tell you that I did not want to go on living. But you know what? I thank God for allowing me to be taken to that point and reaching out to me at the very moment I needed him. And God reached out to me and my family, and I'm telling you, just at the right time through another man who had experienced similar issues in his life, but who had already come to know Jesus. And that man knew that Jesus was the answer to our problems. When this person suggested that we fix our lives by simply reading the Bible in my home, that we begin by doing that, even though I didn't see how that could possibly work, I jumped at the chance because I was, I was truly that desperate. Um, <clears throat> we read the book of Luke's, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and we discussed what we had read. In the process, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, God revealed himself to us, and we began to truly know him. God opened my eyes and those of my wife and my children, and we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior of our lives in November of 98. Now, did God come into my life and change every problem and every circumstance that I face? Did he come in and make everything right? No, he didn't. But what he did do was give me and my family another perspective on those circumstances and hardships. He taught us that these things are just part of life. And the important thing in situations like this is that we trust in him. And God changed our priorities. He changed our priorities such that we strive to know him more and more every day. And by doing so, Jesus, Jesus himself enables, enables us to deal with the troubles in, that this life can bring with peace and godly behavior. God teaches us that these troubles are only temporary, and in heaven there will be no trials and no hardships to deal with. Do I react to everything life throws at me in a godly way? No, I don't. I fall short every day. But God has also taught me that he is a merciful God, and every time I stumble and fall, he's there to help me up. In closing... I'd like to say that truly knowing Jesus has changed my life. God has taught me that the trials we face in the stuff of this world really don't determine whether we have peace or not. These things really don't matter. In fact, when our life on this earth is over and we stand before God, 
The only thing that will matter will be knowing Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross. And for that, I, will be, I am and will be eternally grateful. Thank you. said, he says, I thought I knew Jesus, but I really didn't. You know, I guess it's not until you get to the other side of that that you can put those two components together. But hopefully today might be some help in that category. Uh, interestingly enough, based on Ron's words, the title of the message this morning is Knowing Versus Knowing About, a story of contrasts. And when you come to the Bible, as we've been doing so for, for weeks, I know we've got a lot of folks who may be here for the first time or just recently joining us. And we've done a series of, of messages since the summer that has been studying God, right? Just an introduction to God. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about choosing just to, to be introduced to God is that most of us can't remember the day when we thought we needed to be introduced to God. And how many just need, I mean, I need to be introduced to God. Well, I already know some things about God. And most of us come to this moment already informed about a lot of things about God. I think if you actually did some kind of a chart of knowledge of God in our lives, I think what you'd find is when we're kids and younger, we get introduced to some ideas about God and we learn most of what we're going to learn about God then. And then as time goes on, most of us learn less and less and less and we just hold on to whatever it was that we were taught in the beginning. But, you know, you know, time and experience and knowledge and growth should put us in a better position to understand who God is today than we were when we were kids. But sometimes we're not, we're not letting that information be updated. We get convinced of some traditional views about who God is and what religion is and how do you approach the whole realm of religion. We make our mind up and we just stay with that. We don't necessarily go back and adjust those views or look at them more carefully. Listen, if you were like me as a kid growing up, how carefully were you even paying attention to what you were being taught? I mean, I literally got into my teenage years and I had had a real encounter with God during my teenage years that, that really changed my life. But I can remember being a teenager and raising this question. Why have I believed what I've believed all these years? Now, some of us believe what we believe, but we never stop and ask the question, well, why do I believe that, though? And so it's a good thing to stop and study again. Maybe go back and review. Why do you believe what you believe about God? And what we did in this series was we, we looked at how God interacts with people. So we studied people's lives to see how God could be discovered through their lives. And so you look at a guy like Abraham in the Bible, a man who didn't know God. He knew of a God, but he didn't know God. And when he met God, there was this impact on his life. His life changed amazingly. He left his home. He left his business. He relocated. He went after a place that God had promised to him that he'd never seen in his life, but he trusted this God. He at one point in his life was going to offer his son as a sacrifice and lose his son because he trusted God could even bring him back from the dead if he needed to. This man trusted God. There was an impact on his life. We looked at Moses. We looked at Isaiah. Isaiah, who was scared to death 
by God. Do you remember the image of Isaiah standing before the throne of God? Almost wet in his pants. That's about what the Bible says. He was freaked out by God. Some of us need to get freaked out by God. But you know what Isaiah did? He didn't run away from God in terror. He actually ran toward God. He got freaked out and he got down low. But he moved toward God because he encountered something in God in that exchange that in his heart he knew he wanted and he needed more than anything else in his life. We look through King David, all these great characters from the Old Testament throughout the Bible. King David, who, you know, if you study him carefully, he's got a bad resume. This dude's got issues, big issues. He was an adulterer. He was a liar. He covered things up. He deceived. He was a failure. I'm talking about some problems at home. This dude bred problems. He wrote the book on how to have problems at home. He murdered somebody. And yet, he encountered a God who knew all of that and loved him in spite of it and made a commitment to him and a promise to him that even David in his weirdness couldn't break the initiation of God into his life and God's desire to bless him. But i got to be honest, though. When I read in the Bible, not everybody encounters God that way. It's almost as though in all of these stories, there, there's a guy who's, who's going to meet God, God's going to reveal himself to that man, and that man's going to be devastated in a good way. But if you just were to take a picture of that and then just stare off to the right, there's going to be a guy standing over here who that doesn't happen to him. The same God revealing himself, and yet that guy's not going to be affected. So there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. And I want us to look today, we're going to look at one story, but you can find these stories all over Scripture, actually. If you turn to Luke chapter 18... We're going to put our feet down here into a series of contrasts. You know, we just did a a course on reading the Bible and getting things out of your reading. Well, this would be something to notice. When you're reading through Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 19, uh, the timing of it's important. You're, You're just about to the end of Jesus' ministry here. He's about to go into Jerusalem for the last time. And then it's going to slow up, and we're going to study his life through that time where he goes to the cross and offers himself as a sacrifice. But this is right before that time, so he's still kind of wandering through the countryside, and he's interacting with people. And there's several contrasts that get thrown out in this section here. There's a, there's a Pharisee and a tax collector. Remember that story? They both go to the temple to pray, and there's a contrast intentionally. This Pharisee who's a religious figure is also a very arrogant man and thinks he's better than others and he presents himself before God. And then there's this tax collector who recognizes he's a sinner before a holy God and he's crying out for mercy. This great contrast between them takes place. Then there's this presentation right before the verses we're going to look at. There in verse 18 is where we're going to start today. But right before it is a story about little children coming to Jesus and how Jesus says that's the way to enter into the kingdom of God like these children do. And then there's immediately a contrast because this man here we're about to meet seemingly observes Jesus make this comment about these children and then he's going to kind of ask, well, how can I get into the kingdom? And his way in is very different than the children. But what I want to catch here is the contrast between this rich man. He's a rich, he's a young man and he's a ruler. 
And at the end of his story, he's going to walk away from meeting Jesus grieved and saddened. And then just a few verses later, we're going to meet another man named Zacchaeus, who is also a wealthy man. And he's going to meet Christ, and he's going to walk away totally different. So I want us to look at these two guys. Let's read together about our rich young ruler, beginning in verse 18 of Luke chapter 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it, those who heard Jesus say this, this was a shocking thing for them to hear. They said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Lord, help us. This story was preserved by you because it tells us something about you and about our need for you. So Lord, open our eyes to what you intended this story about this man to communicate to us that we might receive the good of what you speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Douglas Milneves wrote a commentary on Luke that would get the great stamp of approval of our own Peter Davidson from the series Let's Study Luke. He loves these commentaries. Mr. Milne says, The young man had grown up in a devout Jewish home where he had learned the commandments from childhood without understanding their connection with a future Messiah who would secure through his own obedience the blessings of God for his people. Right? You can get that, that this guy doesn't get that. This is a Jewish man who grew up in a religious setting. He knows a lot about God. He knows about the Old Testament. But he's asking about what he must do to inherit eternal life. He showed this ignorance by claiming to have kept all God's commands. Right? I mean, even if he's taking a good swing here at the commands, you know, it's interesting. There's ten commands. Jesus actually lists five. Now, if you break the commands up, there's six that have to do with how you relate to people. There's four that have to do with how you relate to God. So there's this kind of a, a thought process here in the commands. 
Jesus mentions five of the six commands, and he leaves one off. Do you know which one he left off? Thou shalt not covet. And then he turns around and tells the man, you've kept them all, really. How about you sell everything you got and you give it to the poor? <laughs> and found the button. <laughs> you got a problem with that one, right? And come follow me. Well, that would be the first four commands, right? That I would be the God over your life and not any of these things. So in reality, this man really hadn't done what he had claimed that he had done. Yet how could he when he was asking Jesus the way to eternal life? He was searching still for a personal peace and spiritual assurance in spite of his obedience. How many are doing the same in our highly spiritualized world? What matters is not the amount of religion people engage in, but its kind. It's another way of saying it's not so much the idea of that you believe something, that you have faith in your life. No, 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 no. What matters is what is your faith in? What is the object of your faith? It doesn't matter that you're just religious. It matters what kind of religion are you? What are you depending upon? You know, it's interesting here, at the end of this story, if we're fair to this story, we find out we're meeting a man who's going to engage Christ in a conversation. Now, he's different than a lot of the guys who come and ask Jesus questions. If you read the New Testament, you find a lot of the guys who come and ask Jesus questions, they're loaded questions, and they've got an agenda to them. They're trying to trip Jesus up. They're the Pharisees. Well, this is not a Pharisee. This guy really is asking. What, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, he's asking that question after assessing his own life and finding out, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I've, I've kept the rules from my childhood. At the end of this story, this man's going to walk away from Christ, and he, just, let's just be fair to what we see here. Because the question gets raised by others, then who can be saved? Uh, good terminology there. Who can be saved? This man is flirting with whether or not he is saved. Whether or not he's in a right posture and relationship to God. And while, by the time we get to the end of this story, the implication for him is he is not. Now, would you have thought that if you knew this man? Would you have thought he's not right with God? That, that guy's not right with God. This guy's a, a, a decent person. He's morally, he's a pretty good guy. He's, he's keeping these commands. He's not murdering. He's not committing adultery. You know, you go off to work, your wife stays home, you're safe. This guy's not going to commit adultery while you're gone. Wouldn't you like to have him as a neighbor? He's not stealing from you. He's a decent guy. As a matter of fact, he sounds like he's trying to do these things. And he knows something about God. He's a religious man. Would you conclude that a religious man who's trying to do the right thing with his life is not saved? Would you come to that conclusion? But you can't help but come to that conclusion when you read this story, right? Sometimes the Bible kind of rocks our boat, makes us have to rethink some of our personal traditions. Uh, other thought here. Can, can, can you relate to this guy a little bit? Right? Most of us here in America, we grow up in some kind of religious background. So we have built into us this idea that there's good and bad behavior and we're trying to live 
on, on, you know, with a little bit more on the good side of the ledger than on the bad side. But can you relate to the fact that this guy has been trying to live a good life, but he's still not sure he's right with God? You ever try and do that? You ever try and get your life right with God? You're, you're trying to figure out, am I okay with God? Am I, am I doing enough here? See, this guy gets hooked on the horns of a dilemma of his own good activity. Ken Hughes, in his commentary on Luke, says, Though he meticulously observed the law, he evidently had found no assurance of eternal life. Hey, do you know how many people I will meet through the years, talk about religion with them? They go to church, they're trying to lead decent lives, and you ask them, hey, I'm, you know, let me ask you this question. If you were to die today and suddenly you had to stand before God, would he let you into his kingdom? Now, even as you're hearing that question, what kind of an answer would you give? What kind of answer would this guy give? Because he's, he's not sure. He's asking, am, am, I do, am I on the right track here? Am I going to get in? I, you know, Keith, I don't know. I, I hope so, but I don't know. Well, the problem that we encounter with this guy is he's injected a problem into his answer. His problem is that he has wrapped up his future eternal life in his own performance. He has injected the idea of good into this conversation. He uses that word, and Jesus jumps all over it. He uses the idea of good. Now, here's the problem with using the idea of good. Because aren't you hoping that I'm going to be led into the kingdom of God because I'm good enough? To get in. Isn't that the hope for most of us? That we're good enough to get in to the kingdom of heaven. But the problem with, with good is there's all kinds of varieties of good. Right? I mean, have you thought this through? I mean, what kind of good are we talking about here to get into eternal life? Well, there's, there's a kind of good that's not as bad as those really bad people good. You know that kind of good? You know you're not like this awesome, trend-setting, good person, but you also know there's people worse than you. So you're good in a not-as-bad-as-them kind of way, you know? Or, you know, if you're not into pointing at other people, you're good in the sense that you're, you're not as bad as you could have been, you know? You look back over your life and you can remember those moments where, you know, I, I could have been worse, I could have done something really, really worse than what I did. Matter of fact, you know, I, listen, I did a lot of bad things in my life. But, you know, looking back, I could have done more. So, yeah, I guess I'm a pretty good person. Well, so you got that kind of good. You got the kind of good that then isn't just about bad stuff that you no longer do, but it's about doing some good things. So you begin to reflect and you think, you know, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. I mean, you know, I can remember that time that, you know, we were... We were traveling, we bumped into that guy, he didn't have any food or anything, and we, we bought him a meal, and we even put him up in a hotel for the night, you know. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. Okay, well, let's just explore that for a moment. Did you ever do that again? Well, I don't know, man. I helped this, this lady load some stuff in her car once at the grocery store, and, uh, you know, my neighbor down the street needed to borrow the lawnmower. I'm good about that. I mean, I, yeah, I help some people. Not really. A lot? I mean, you do it a lot? Well, I don't know. What would, what would you call a lot? I do it every, you know, I do it every once in a while. I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm pretty good. Well, how good do you have to be? 
Do you have to wake up in the morning with your sole project being to give away everything about yourself to serve others' interests constantly 24-7? Is that the goodness that we're after? You understand good has all kinds of definitions to it, doesn't it? So when this guy approaches Jesus and he throws that word good out, Jesus jumps all over him. Why does he do that? Was Jesus in a bad mood? What's going on here? He just asks you a question, man. Good teacher. It's like Jesus spins around. Why do you call me good? Was it because Jesus didn't think he was good? No, not at all. Jesus knows he is the perfect son of God. So he's off the charts when it comes to good. What he knows is this man doesn't understand good. He knows he's got one of those definitions I just gave you for good. He's got one of those I'm not as bad as I could be good. And you're better than most good. See, he doesn't have a definition for uh, when I call you good, you're God. See, he didn't, he didn't realize he's encountering God. And according to the Bible, only God is good. Everybody else falls short of good. So if you're falling short of good, then you are not. Thank you for your help. Look, look in Romans chapter 3. Now, I know this is crazy because all of us think we're good. Right? I mean, listen, I, I'm with you. I'm not thinking I'm great. I'm not going to be in the Olympics. I'm, I'm not, you know, not Judge Judy or anything. Uh, but, you know, I'm pretty good. But should I be using the term good to describe me if Jesus is saying good belongs in the category of God? And you guess what? You're not that kind of good. And, and if you understood that, young man, you would realize what desperate shape you're in, no matter how many times you try and keep these rules and these commands. The goodness of God is in a different league than your goodness. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So everybody in humanity doesn't fit in the good category. They fit in the under sin category. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now, this is a huge verse to unpack, and I can't take time to do it. And I know right now people are thinking, well, wait, that doesn't make any sense. I know lots of people who do good things. Okay, let me just impose a biblical definition of good onto our lives for a second. When it comes to using the word good the way God uses it, good only gets permission to be used when something is done for the glory of God. And it is done out of the power of God. So when an individual comes along and says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help that old lady there to pack her groceries up into the car. and you know, I'm, I'm going to take the time to do that. I'm busy, but I'm, I'm going to do that. Is this being done by the power of God in that person for the glory of God? It, it looks like a good thing, but it could be just a means of helping me feel better about myself. Or that old lady over there, 
That's the boss's mom. So if I help her out, I'm going to score points with him. So somehow, even serving can be about me. And there's all these hidden motives in why people do what they do. When it's not done for the glory of God, it's done for something about me. And immediately, it's no longer good in the eyes of God. Because everything that exists, exists for his glory. When you pull it from that purpose and make it about something else, in God's eyes, it's no longer good. So that's a different definition. That's why the Bible can say there's, there's none good. No one does good. Look, look down in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. I don't think the rich young man knew this. Because his question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's been trying to do all of his life. He's a religious man who's bought into a list of religious activities that he believes will make him have right standing with God. But here the Bible clearly says by works of the law, no human being, no one will ever be pronounced right before God by any deed that you can perform in your own strength and power. No man. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right? And he kind of got in touch with, he's going to get in touch with his knowledge of sin here. Because Jesus without saying, what about God being your supreme love and thou shalt not covet? Without him saying that, he just applies it. He says, how about this? How about you sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me? Because if you really were following those two commands, you'd say, sure, where, where do I go? But he gets in touch with the fact that you don't do that, do you? So that's what the law does. The law kind of gets up in your face and says, did you notice how covetous you are? Did you notice how much God is not the priority of your life? Well, that's what the law does. But now the righteousness of God, right, that's another way of saying the goodness, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's fallen short, so nobody's in the good category here. And are justified, they're made right with God by his grace as a gift. So this man's asking, what must I do? What must I achieve, Jesus? Jesus is saying it's not about achievement. It's, it's about receiving. It's not about you achieving anything. It's about somebody else achieving it on your behalf. And then you're just receiving it from him. That's what Romans teaches. That's what this man misses in his interaction with Christ. Look, at, Let me just finish this section of Romans. Verse 24. Justified by his grace as a gift, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith, not achieved, 
You don't achieve the gift of God's forgiveness and his rightness. You receive it as a gift. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So do you see the disconnect with our friend here? When he comes to Jesus with his moral background and his religious background and his knowledge of a God that exists and, and some laws that this God has given, he accumulates all that into himself and he says, I have to achieve something, and he asked Jesus, what must I achieve? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the contrast here is coming right out of the heels of the story. Go back to Luke, chapter 18. This man is asking this from what it appears, his observation of Jesus' interaction with children. Look at verse 15. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This man seems to overhear and observe this interaction. And he says, well, well, good teacher, what, what must I do to enter the kingdom? Well, what do these children do to enter it? What kind of resume are they bringing? This man's a, a wealthy, successful, impressive young man. In that day, it's very likely that they would have equated the blessing in his life with the favor of God. So to some degree, he kind of had a little bit of that health and wealth message that's hanging around the church today. That if you got a lot of money, well, that's because God is good with you. So he's thinking, you know, the evidence is I'm, I'm in good shape here. I'm a moral guy. I'm, I'm leading a pretty good life. And look at all the stuff. Look at the success God has given me. But even with that, he's insecure. He's not sure he's right with God. So he asks Jesus this question. But do you see the contrast here in these verses? These children have done nothing to achieve the kingdom of God. They're children. They can't bring their money. They can't bring their success. And remember, they are children, so they're liars. And uh, it's not as though these were the really good children that were available. You know, they're, they got issues. Children got issues, right? Uh, one of the first words your children learn is no, right? It's a short word, but they mean it when they say it. They're not using it incorrectly. Got a lot of other words they're using incorrectly. When they use the word no, they mean it. They understand it. So these, these are sinful children that are jumping all over Jesus' lap, probably have disobeyed their parents and ran across the town square to jump on his lap. I, I mean, this is what's going on right here. And Jesus says the kingdom belongs to such as these, these who have no resume. 
All they can do is receive. We, I give it to them. And here comes this man who's got a big resume. And he doesn't ask about what Jesus is achieving for him. He doesn't ask anything about receiving by grace. He wants to know what he has to do. This is a religious man who knew something about God. Yet his understanding of the kingdom was more about what he had to do than what it was about the one he was speaking with and what he would do on his behalf. He missed the Messiah here. He doesn't even realize all this stuff I've been observing all these years, it all pointed to him. Here is the one, the only one who'd ever be able to keep the law perfectly. He's sitting here talking to me, and this man doesn't see him. See, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Right now, if we look at his life a little bit here, we've got some ingrained problems I think we, many of us can relate to. Douglas Milne says, there was something missing, and Jesus placed his finger on it. He was in love with himself more than God. His money was his God, and he lived for it. Asked to choose between his money and Jesus, he chose his wealth. He wanted eternal life on his own terms. He was willing to live a moral life, but not to give his heart to God. He's not the first, nor will he be the last person to lose his soul in the love and pursuit of wealth. Here's a man who meets Christ, but, but he is unaffected. He comes into this conversation, and wealth is God to him. And he walks away from that conversation, and wealth is still God to him. Now, the immediate contrast in the story is the contrast with the disciples. When they met Christ, they had a decision to make as well. They had businesses. They owned boats and were fishermen and tax collectors. They, they had a life going on. And the activity of their life was generating for them what they could call life. And then they meet Christ. And by contrast, they walked away from all of it. And they raised the question, Lord, what, what about us? We, we've done what you just said. And Jesus says, yeah, and you're going to be blessed. You're, you're going to be blown away in this life and in the life to come. So you see the contrast here of a man who didn't respond. Now listen, why didn't he respond? Because he found more value in the life he had than in the one that Jesus was offering him. He kept doing what he wanted to do. He wanted to milk life out of his wealth and out of what he had. He wanted to get his life there. And Jesus said, how about, how about separating yourself from that life and receiving the life I'll give you? Well, he didn't want that. He didn't value that nearly as much. Douglas Milne says, but Jesus understands the issues and knows the answer. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Only a God of grace can set people free from the inner bondage of desire that shackles them to wealth and its pleasures. It is not the wealth that is the problem, but the man or woman of wealth who cannot live without it because it acts like a drug. This guy's drugged. He's meeting God. And God's offering him life. But he's drugged by the, his own life, by the way in which he thinks he can find life. You know, what's interesting here, though, is, is you find out how to set people free. As Milne says, the bondage of desire 
what kept this man where he was was what he wanted. How do you overcome someone's desire for the wrong thing? Remember, people do what they want to do. He wanted the life that he had. What was this man's need? He needed a different set of desires, didn't he? He just needed to want something else more than he wanted that. And he let go of that in a second. Isn't that the way you do things? You let go of things all the time. You save up money and save up money and save up money. And then when you find something you want more than you want that money, you spend it, right? Because one desire overrules another. Well, for this guy, he didn't have enough of the desire for Christ to overrule the desire that he had. But by contrast, just a few days later, turn to Luke chapter 19. Another man, another wealthy man is going to meet Christ. His name is Zacchaeus. And the outcome is going to be very different. Verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not. Now remember, can you see the difference here already? Zacchaeus wants to see who Jesus is. The rich young ruler wants to ask what he has to do. Do you see the difference in how these two are even going to approach Christ? He was a man who was small of stature, so he couldn't see. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, this crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, who is this guy, Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He's a Jewish man who collects taxes for the Romans from his fellow countrymen. Can you imagine how much you like this man? And this, if I have defrauded anybody, oh, well, there's no if involved, pal. <laughs> because he was, he was the chief tax collector. So, you know, he could impose and he could say, well, there's been an increase since the last time. Well, Rome doesn't know anything about that increase. This is Zacchaeus' increase. And so he's getting a little bit more to put in his own pocket before he passes that on to Rome, right? Look at this thought from Ken Hughes. He says, as chief tax collector Zacchaeus was head of a tax farming corporation with collectors who extorted the people, then paid him before he paid the Romans. He was the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel and had the scruples of a modern-day crack dealer. He was filthy rich in the fullest sense of the term, and, of course, he was hated. Interesting, though. I mean, just think for a moment. This man, in many ways, leads an isolated life. 
because only those who he could buy as his friends were probably his friends. Because it didn't matter whether your business had fallen on hard times. It didn't matter whether your family was in desperate need. He was sending his collector and you were going to pay. So you didn't like this man. This man didn't have friends that wanted to be his friend. I wonder how that affected him. He's living a life that his money could buy him. Do you think he was really satisfied with that? I wonder. I wonder what captured his attention about this Jesus coming to town. Certainly, he was a, Jesus is a miracle worker. He's done all kinds of things. I wonder what made this man so eager to check this Jesus out. What had he heard about Jesus? I'm suspicious. The Bible doesn't say this, but I would wonder. I wonder if he knew about a man named Levi who traveled with Jesus. Remember Levi? You know him as Matthew, the tax collector. Probably a wealthy man as well who gave up everything. And when he encountered this Jesus, this Jesus didn't shun him. Matthew is one of Jesus' followers going place to place to place. When that tax collector encountered Christ, he encountered love and forgiveness and mercy and care and acceptance. I wonder if that's why this man wants to climb up in this tree and figure out How could a man like me, after all I've done, ever be accepted? I wonder if that's what made him so eager. And when he encounters the God of grace, his life is drastically changed. And his shackles fall off. And he's free to do everything that the rich young ruler could not do. Do you see a contrast in these two individuals? One meets Christ, and he can't turn his money loose. Matter of fact, I cannot follow you, Jesus, because my life is bound up in this. This other man meets Christ and is so affected immediately. Everything he's built his life on, even the fact that he's built a life that has alienated everybody from his life, he was willing to do that because he counted that money and that lifestyle as more valuable than all these people. You see how much he'd put into his money? But when he meets Christ, immediately he's released and freed from that which he put all of his hope in. Jesus, I'll give it away and I'll restore fourfold. Jesus didn't say anything about him giving anything away, did he? Now the other guy, Jesus specifically says, how about you do this? Jesus didn't have to ask Zacchaeus that because Zacchaeus met Christ and his life was changed. And when his life was changed, he was more than willing to be freed from his stuff. Jesus didn't have to require anything from him. He was eager to live differently. He encountered the God of grace in this moment, and it blew his mind. He joins the Abrahams and the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs and all the guys we've been looking at who encountered God, and they became different people. Zacchaeus is a different man. But I want you to see something. Zacchaeus is a different man by the grace of God. Zacchaeus is not trying to achieve something with God. He's just receiving this Jesus into his life. Look there in verse 5. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. You must? Not, hey, I got a few minutes uh, before we hustle on to the next town. Sure, 
Sure. As a matter of fact, Zacchaeus is just sitting in the tree. There's no evidence here that Zacchaeus is shooting flares up in the air, got a megaphone yelling at Jesus. Would you be doing that if you were the successful tax collector, the little guy, climbed up in a, you climbed up in a tree, you did what? This has to be a very embarrassing moment for this guy. He's in a tree. I don't think he wants to be noticed. I think he just wants to observe something about Christ. It's Jesus who takes notice of him and points him out and calls him by name. Do you think he had a sign installed? Do you think he had a big Zacchaeus banner over his head and he was holding it up? I'm Zacchaeus, like he was picking up at the airport. I'm Zacchaeus, need a ride? How did Jesus know this guy's name? I think he knew his name for the same reason that he said, Zacchaeus, I must be with you today. Because it looks like Zacchaeus is on a mission here. Can you, can you clue into the fact that it's God who's on the mission here? We kind of get screwed up here a little bit because some we look at guys like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus found God. Oh, no, no. It was Jesus who found Zacchaeus, called him by name. And said, Zacchaeus, I'm up to something in your life. Therefore, I must be with you today. The emphasis is on the grace of God that came from the Son of God to find this man, this man. Now, what kind of resume is this guy bringing? He doesn't show up and say, Jesus, you know all the commands? Well, well, let's not go there. Let's talk about something else. Do you like my sofa? I mean, he could not have brought a resume like the rich young ruler did. This guy knows, I have hurt people left and right, have taken advantage of them, I have stolen. I mean, is there a command I have not broken would have been his appeal. But yet when Jesus encounters this man and the grace of God comes to him and this man finds the Son of God to accept him in all of his sinfulness, this man is changed and starts doing everything the rich young ruler couldn't do. See, because what did he find? When he encountered Christ, what did he find? He found God. He found what his soul needed. He found what he had been looking for all of his life. Listen, when I read this story, it's an interesting contrast here. Remember this verse here? If you ever wanted to understand what Jesus was about, don't... don't uh, don't undersell him. Don't make him some social band-aid. Jesus came to understand the down and out guy. To give him a little bit of help, give him a hand up, offer him some encouragement. No. Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the mission of Christ. He came to seek and to save the lost. Does that mean everybody's going to be saved? Well, we have a story of contrasts. We have a man who's a rich young ruler, and we have a filthy tax collector named Zacchaeus. And at the end of these two exchanges, one of them is saved, and one of them is not. And that's the reality in these passages. Now, what's amazing here is Jesus just got finished saying that how difficult it is for a wealthy man to come into the kingdom. Didn't he just say that? 
so difficult that the people thought, well, if it's impossible, how can it happen? Jesus said, well, with man, it's impossible. But with God, it's possible. And then just a couple of days later, they get to see it, how it's possible, how a man who loves his wealth could find something else more valuable and be willing to give it all up. Listen, not because he was trying to make a deal with Jesus. This is not him buying his way into the kingdom. This is a man who's met his life. And in the moments that he does, he gets released from all these other things that have shackled him all these years. Now, listen, and Eric, you can go ahead and come back up. Hey, for us here today, it's possible. From the Bible, it's possible. And you could be here this morning, and you could either be the rich young ruler, or you could be Zacchaeus. You could sit here in this room and listen to the same exact message as somebody else is sitting in this room. And someone here realizes, you know, I've built my life on good, success, pleasures, but I'm like Zacchaeus in that these things haven't fixed me. I wonder if Christ would fix me. I wonder if he's my answer. And I'm willing to part with everything to have him. And you see Christ in that kind of posture with that kind of value. Or are you the person sitting here like the rich young ruler? You came in here, you're a decent person, you're a moral person, trying to do the best you can, haven't done some really horrible things in your life. And the basis for you being right with God, if you really answered the question I asked earlier, was, well, I think I'm pretty good. I think I'm, I think I'm good enough. I'm not great, Keith, don't get me wrong, but I, I think I'm okay. Well, if you think you're okay, listen, what the Son of God did in dying on a cross to take the penalty of your sin, if you're okay, then you don't need that gift, then do you? Because you're okay. You can't do enough to get right with God. You can't. And that thing in your heart that keeps wearing you out and making you feel like, I'm trying, I'm trying. But, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm right. Do you realize you can be sure? When you realize Jesus Christ stands and he shows himself to you, the God who is perfect in his love, Perfect in his forgiveness. You got, you got a resume? You realize God would forgive everything in your life because of what his son did? You, you hope your life's going to be something at some point in your life. You're holding out and trusting that you're doing some things that are going to provide life for you. Well, here's what I want to ask you today. <clears throat> Do you see in Christ such worth and such promise and such hope that you'd be willing to set that aside to have this. Because if you do, then you're where Zacchaeus was. And you can respond this morning. You can take your life and say, Jesus, I'm not bound to these things anymore. 
I don't have to have them. I know I have to have you. <clears throat> I need you in my life. Now, remember, Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus that he had to sell his stuff. And God may not tell you that. But the question is, are you free from it? Are you free from the life you've created in order to receive the life that he wants to give you? That's the question this morning. Let's, let's stand up together. Close our eyes and pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for, thank you for Ron's story, Lord. Lord, thank you for these men. We know Zacchaeus by name. We don't know this other man, but, but he seems sincere, Lord, asking you how to be right for eternity, how to enter into the kingdom. Lord, in this room, some of us are asking that same question. Lord, how do I know I'm right with you forever? But how do I enter into the kingdom? Well, Lord, for those that are here asking that question, Lord, make their own hearts known to them. Do they see in you the God who is worth it all? Do they see in you the God of hope? The God who said, let not the mighty man boast in his might or the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boast, boast in this, that he understands and he knows me. Oh God, it's not enough that we know about you. It's not enough that we've gone to church a bunch of times and we know some things that we should do with our lives. But we need to know you, to know you in the depth of our heart in such a way that we feel released into the life that you offer us. Oh, Lord, this morning, let this morning be the morning, Lord. Let it be the time this morning for some where they don't walk out of a meeting grieved because not willing to entrust their life to you completely. But they're like Zacchaeus, and they meet you, and great joy fills their hearts. And the days ahead are filled with anticipation because they finally found the one for whom they were created. Lord, this morning, open hearts to yourself. Call by name. Call the Zacchaeuses here by name because, Lord, you, you created this morning. You created this moment. You went ahead of each of the folks that are here so that they could and would be here because you must meet with them so that you might call them by name and say, hey, I have life for you. Lay down your life and receive it. If you're here this morning and you want to receive the life that God has for you, I want to ask you to do something a little bit radical. You don't have to climb a tree. You don't have to do what Zacchaeus did. But I just want to pray with you. All right, so I'm, going to, I'm just going to come down here in a moment and, and just stand and pray with you. If you're saying, you know, I want to be sure that when I walk out of here today, I've entrusted my life to Christ. He's the one that I'm looking to in the future. He's the one I'm depending on. I'm not depending on my background, my resume, my goodness, my money. I'm dependent on Christ for my life now and in the life to come. I'm dependent on him. Listen, if you're not sure about that, you can be sure in an instant. And I just want to pray with you if that's your case. 
So before we close the service, just make your way up here. And I'm going to come down and just pray with you in just a moment. If you're here and you'd like to do that, as we close with a song, you make your way out, and I'll wait for you right here.